Here's a news flash. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at you. The whole world is watching for my next move. Oh my God. Times have changed. There are no rules. You're gonna love it. Welcome. You are listening to Skip Intro, the podcast from Binge, telling you what is hot and streaming this week in television. My name's Alison Herbert Burns. I'm normally joined by my colleague, John Bohm, but he's gallivanting around Europe somewhere. So today I am joined by Dan Barrett, resident TV expert, our usual producer who is swapping hats and joining me behind the mic. Welcome, Dan. All right, Alison, look, it's very exciting to be here. After the first time I got to do the Binge podcast with John a couple of months ago, I didn't think I'd be let back on, but here we go. I guess John's side of the country, so he can't stop it. There's no rules. There's no adults. Like if the producer's now behind the mic and the normal host isn't here, I just think we should have a bit of fun today. And you're going to have to call me Ali because Alison makes me feel like I'm in trouble, Dan. Oh, look, that's probably true. I can't really break that habit. Uh, it's, I guess I'm maybe thinking a little bit about back in the day when Johnny Carson used to host The Tonight Show. There's always a hesitancy to go on holidays because if you go on holidays, the guest host may suddenly prove themselves to be really quite viable. And then either they could take over you, you like the show that you host, or they could launch their own show up against you, which happened a couple of times with Carson. So I don't know, John, I'm saying, look out, be careful. You've made a big mistake. (laughs) Well, he's probably listening to this somewhere around the world. He's walking around a castle in Barcelona or something, but hey, he's actually in fairness. I probably also just need to apologize because- the first time in our 40 odd episode run, we missed an episode last week. I was on my way back. John and I've been at a buying market in overseas. He stayed on for a bit of a break. I had to rush back actually for the binge and Foxtel group up fronts. You were buying TV shows. It wasn't like you were out like buying fish at a market somewhere. That is true. And we weren't buying TVs like at a market. We wasn't like, we we're like Samsung, LG, which one should we buy? <laughs> we were at yeah, MIPCOM, which is the big um, TV market that happens annually in October in Cannes um, in the south of France, which does sound as la-di-da as it probably sounds, but it is literally everyone from Teleland descends and shares um, what's hot, what's what's their latest format, yeah, what's debuting and what we can expect on our television screen soon. But, yeah, apologies, we've been a little bit um, out of time zone, so we haven't followed a normal rhythm, which means we haven't spoken about what's happening on Binge now for a couple of weeks, Dan, and for the last eight weeks now we've been following House of the Dragon and it is just concluded episode 10 has just landed on binge so today we thought we'd catch up on the final two episodes which have been creating quite a bit of noise and because i've got you here as a special guest let's unlock the vault and we want to hear dan barrett's view on a dinner party recommendation or something else awesome on binge that we should talk about yeah look i'm going to warn people up front i'm not a game of thronesologist so if you're expecting that from this uh, podcaster i'm not sure i can really deliver that but I can maybe give some insight on TV generally and how that relates to Game of Thrones. So hopefully that's enough to fake my way through this. I think it will, but also we have dedicated our podcast or we've let House of the Dragon take over our podcast now for nearly 10 weeks. And I think there's probably a lot of people that loved House of the Dragon but are really ready to talk about other things. So maybe we can just mush it together today, little, little House of the Dragon recap. The dragon finally came into, into the picture big time in these last few episodes. And then let's get talking about some other stuff. The king is dead. You told me you wish for Egon to be king. The door remains shut until we finish our business. None can know who you are or what you seek. 
first of all, we've got episodes nine and 10. And what I thought was particularly interesting with both is that in episode nine, it's kind of the wrap up of the King has died and all the conspiratorial efforts to try to, um, you know, jockey the son into the role of uh, the reigning monarch, where all along it had been the daughter that had been promised the role, the firstborn daughter as opposed to the firstborn son, which is very progressive uh, for <laughs> King's otherwise. So, look, that's all very exciting. But I thought it was kind of good that we saw, like, that's that family sort of play it out. And then we saw in episode 10 the flip side and we started seeing how it looks on the other side of Westeros where suddenly they find out the news that there's been all this jockeying going on over the last couple of days and they're trying to play catch-up and then amass the armies and get all that business happening. So that was pretty fun. But the other thing I liked is that, look, I'm going to be as polite about this as possible, but some of the special effects early on in the series, a little bit of tinny looking to be as polite about it as possible. But this backhand, the last couple of episodes, there are so many exciting special effects with these dragons. I was just um, having a great time with it. I think two really good points you picked up on there to start off. House of the Dragon, it's called. But we have had through the middle part of this show not as much dragon action. So we had quite a lot of dragons at the beginning. They were really pivotal to the deaths and, you know, um, the child deaths and the queens dying and things. But we kind of hadn't seen them for four or five episodes. So, yeah, how good was it to have them come back so strongly and play a really big role in both Ep 9 and 10? Yeah, I mentioned the special effects, but what I was really taken with, so I was watching this on my iPad while my baby was sleeping next to me, so I couldn't really crank the TV up. <laughs> but like I've just got a normal sort of TV setup without like a sound bar or anything. So often a lot of the sound gets lost on me. I don't really get to appreciate some of the nuances. But when the dragon is seen coming close up to the camera, you actually hear the real flapping of the big meaty wings that they've got as they're coming right up to the screen. And the sound of it was incredible. I was listening through my AirPods and it was just, just popping everywhere in a good way, not a bad pop. So what's important in episode nine is two things. One, the conspiracy that's taking place. But also the search for the missing king, well, the missing soon-to-be king. So essentially at that point, I think both everyone in the um, inner circle of those who are plotting, as well as the audience, suddenly realise we don't know that much about Aegon. And so through that, for over 15, 20 minutes, we see them going through the township, talking to people of very ill repute, <laughs> and we find out a lot about what this kid's been up to. And a lot of the stuff he's been up to, not really that pleasant, not really dinner party conversation. Uh, the thing that I thought was particularly impressive, well, impressive probably isn't quite the right word, but uh, we'll say notable, is when suddenly they take, take us to a place that he hangs out a lot, which is some sort of underground child fight club where they're spending <laughs> money just betting on these kids brutally attacking each other. Kids who've got like long fingernails to fight better and teeth that have been sharpened down to real pointy sort of nubs. And then they follow it up with a revelation that there's a few kids in there that seem to look quite a fair bit like Aegon, as though maybe he's sort of side a few progeny who are out there involved in the underground fight clubs. So the, the, that's it, but isn't that the irony of it? So he's allowed to sleep around and be loose, but of course, Renea can't, or, you know, so he's the king of slurring her children and calling them the strong men. Um, but Different, different rules for different ones, hey? But then I thought what well, was two other things that were interesting in episode nine before we jump into the final ep is the relationship between Alison and her son where he says, do you even love me? Um, and a moment when they're riding in the back of the carriage, she initially says, you know, you could, eat, you could show some um, thankfulness or, or gratitude for this. And he's like, I know my dad didn't want me to have this. And she's like, yes, he did. And then do you really love me? And I think she goes, you imbecile. It's like, it's not, a, it's not like a very like 
it's just a weird ride, a carriage ride. But then, then the final, well, two things. Then the power that goes to his head when he first gets that roar from the crowd and he goes, even though I didn't think I w- wanted this or people wanted me, as soon as he gets that sense of, you know, the servants all like, we love you. Gosh, you can see his head swell and think, oh, my gosh, I'm, I like this power. But then the dragon scene at the end, why did Reneas Targaryen, when she came in, the queen who never was, why did her dragon not burn him? Was it just to show her that she was going to fight or what? So she explains that in the next episode, which is that she says something along the lines of, um, I could have started a uh, I, I could have started the war, but it's not my war to start. That's right. So, but, but why did she do any of it? Just to warn them that she that this, she wasn't accepting this and because she could have just escaped through the night. Why did she come in and frighten them? Look, I reckon there's a few things going on. So the thing with her is that she's kind of the uh, generation prior to um, her niece. Would it be her niece? Um, yes, yep relationship is uh but the renea character getting the abilities to be like a woman and still be able to ascend to the throne like that's the first time it's happened but she would have been in a position where she was effectively in that role where she was older and as long as gender doesn't really come into her she would have been a rightful heir to the throne well ahead of um viceries yeah uh, is that he runs viceries 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 yeah petty considine <laughs> the king the thing. Yeah. so by her jumping on the dragon essentially she's saying look um i'm just as big a powerhouse right now to be fearful of i uh, recognize my authority but then at the same time i think she's also clawing back a little bit of uh prestige for her mm-hmm. family because her husband has been more or less on his sickbed for the last couple of episodes uh, yeah. i'm not sure what it is through time-wise, uh, possibly a few months at this point. Yeah. Uh, but essentially just saying, hey, look, you know, you may not have been considering us in the slightest, but look, I'm hearing this dragon. I could have killed all of you, chose not to. Okay, respect my authority. I'm out of here, suckers. Yeah, amazing. And then, okay, so jumping into Ep 10 then, what I loved about this last episode was the way um, Reneas and Renea came together and the way Reneas lobbied. So Corlius, her husband, Valerian, the sea snake who was on his deathbed, the fever has broken and he returns. She's angry. He's been away too long. She's got lots of bad news to break to him. But ultimately she says to him, you, um, you know, he's angry with Renea and doesn't think they should be supporting her, but she does, he, she does kind of convince him that that's not the case. And then you see him when he comes to see Renea and they're in this war room and the way she is poised and has regal like because Viserys was called the peaceful king you know the way she's holding her emotions and really considering what's best for her people rather than necessarily her ego I think there's a level of respect then that you can see between Corlys Valerian and Rhaenys Targaryen in 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 an appreciation of their their niece who maybe has queen-like qualities so I like that they all kind of came together Yes, I think Hawley's had great respect for King Viserys. And so when he passed on and when he's told by Reneas that Renea had essentially stood up to all the men at the table and said, no, no, we're going to do this in a peaceful way. I think that's what really sort of gave Hawley sort of pause for thoughts, say, no, this is someone that I should be respecting equally. But also don't forget, there's a lot of baggage happening in that relationship as well, where Corley's blames Renea for the yes, murder. Because um, don't forget, right when that marriage was first proposed, I think it was uh, Renea had said that, look, essentially we're putting him in a position now where he's quite possibly going to be murdered. 
So yep. what they had predicted at the beginning is suddenly what happened. They don't know that he actually faked his death and was uh, set out to sea by Renee. But ultimately, as far as I'm concerned, like she's responsible for the death of their son. And that was always the likely outcome. There's a lot of loose ends that you kind of can understand why this series has already been renewed because there's a lot sort of play out, isn't there? So what we then see is quite a violent scene between Damon and his wife, Renea, who is pregnant. And I think she's still pregnant at this point. And they have like a confrontation and he kind of grabs her by the neck in quite a violent action, which um, I kind of went back and watched twice because it surprised me a little bit. I mean, it doesn't surprise me because Damon can be quite brutal, but I thought their relationship had a little bit, was a little bit not like that. It was kind of interesting because as soon as they got married, it almost sort of takes the Damon character to a point where you think he's sort of joining the side of the, the character we're supposed to be following, the protagonists. Because we kind of view this as a war of sort of good and evil with, you know, these guys are on the side of right. Meanwhile, the people that have just stolen the throne are on the side of wrong. And Damon, you kind of figure, well, he's on this side. So therefore, he's just automatically a good guy going forward. But as we saw in these two episodes, like he's really playing his politics sort of pretty openly. And his interests are not the interests of the rest of his family, including his wife. Yeah, his warmongering really comes through, doesn't it? I think the other big point to talk about in this episode, well, there's lots of them, but the next really big one for me was, again, we saw kind of the symmetry in the storytelling that's happened throughout the season with birthing, with the role of women, Mm -hmm. um, the pressure of that and how giving birth has often either killed the woman or kind of broken them. And so you see what is, a again, another visually stunning and, and quite graphic birthing scene as, Princess Renea delivers, I think, what is her fifth or sixth child who tragically is stillborn or or was born with, it. I think, it's cords around its neck. She goes into labour when she finds out about her father and then the betrayal of Alicent. The way it was kind of, it was tying, it wasn't just the symmetry of the story and the women and and the childbirth that we've seen, but also linked into the dragons and what was quite a coordinated, choreographed scene of her you know, wailing and almost that she was channeling the dragon almost. There was like an out-of-body sense of power that I kind of felt was being shown. Well, that's it. By bookending the season with these two pregnant, uh, these two uh, births that go horribly awry, what they're doing with the first one is that, as you see, the queen effectively put to death because, you know, it's an opportunity to either save the queen or save the child. The woman is seen as having such, um, you know, limited presence and value in the kingdom compared to the possibility of being able to give birth to like the firstborn son. So the mother was just disposed of. Whereas here we see as Renea is taking agency of her own birth, like keep in mind, like the midwife and the other guy that's there, she more or less just pushes them aside and says, look, guys, I've got this, goes through a very traumatic um, impact on her body as well as I'm sure psychologically. But because she's such a strong character that's got so much agency herself, she just puts it all aside and then suddenly she's got the power, she's got the dragons and Mm -hmm. so she moves on. And you're seeing these two... Um, flip sides of the birthing experience and also two women in very different positions of power. And it's kind of interesting thing about those two as mirror versions of each other, when at the same time, um, Alison and Renee are supposed to be seen as flip sides of each other as well, where Alison is very much a traditional queen of the model that is, you know, pretty standard. Whereas Renea is the very opposite of that in that she's going to be the one ascending to the throne and it's her husband that's going to be the king's consort. Like that's yeah. very different to the Alison experience. Isn't it? Especially with a husband like Damon, you can't imagine him being like the second fiddle. So lots to be that said there. That you do then get to the 
guts of a lot of this about the House of the Dragon. They literally, as they're working through war theory and have they got enough support from the, the various houses of the kingdom, the different lords and lordships, but that gets into a trade-off between who's got what dragon. Well, they've got the bigger dragon, we've got more dragons, there's some unclean dragons. So you really understand the prophecy in some regards of, of how fire will rain on all of them and, you know, if dragon takes on dragon, um, as Renea says, that, that is a sign of it not being going to be ending well for any of them. Yeah, I really like these scenes where they were talking about the amount of military strength they had. And look, I'm sure there were scenes in Game of Thrones that were like this as well. But I'm, as I said, I'm not really a Game of Thronesologist. So, you know, if you're a hardcore into Game of Thrones, I apologize if I'm just kind of annoying you with this. But what I kind of like is that there's a sense of bureaucracy in that conversation. And it strikes me that there's a few shows around at the moment which are such a debt to Game of Thrones. And there's a bit of a trade of um, debt sort of being handed amongst them. So the shows I'm thinking about is right now on the TV, we've got House of the Dragon, which has just been a stellar TV season. Uh, you've also got there's the new Star Wars series, Andor, which plays very much in the bureaucracy of the Star Wars universe. And then also you've got the Lord of the Rings TV show. I forget the name of it. Uh, but like that's playing and I haven't really been that into that, to be completely honest. But like all of them are playing around in sort of the margins of these well-established universes that we know quite well. But they're playing around within the minutiae. They're really getting into the nitty-gritty bolts of it in a way that just kind of feels like the parent franchises never really quite went to that level. So when we're, I mean, obviously in Game of Thrones, there's a lot of um, jockeying back and forth. The entire thing is about like the power struggles and balances taking place there. But it kind of feels that we're getting to those arguments, not necessarily with the most important people at the table, but we're really hearing the jockeying and the power plays happening from so many sort of smaller, insignificant players sort of within the world of House of the Dragon. So that's kind of interesting. And then the other thing yeah. is the crown is the other thing that was coming to mind as well for me. And this is maybe less so much in terms of the way that episodes are constructed as much as the way the cast are constructed. So I kind of feel that midway through the season, as we start seeing the cast age up and it's a weird thing about the crown in comparison to this, because Matt Smith's a pretty prominent character in both of them, <laughs> but just the fact that we're able to follow these characters and in one episode they've aged by, was it? 15, 20 years, yeah. uh, it's just kind of fascinating. I don't think you could have gotten away with that in House of the Dragon if the crown hadn't already sort of laid the groundwork a little bit for us to do this. Yeah, that's true, so, isn't it? Because I remember when the crown yeah. first came out, we're like, what do you mean you're swapping them out? They've done such a good job. This, <laughs> You know, wow, just, she's so the queen. No one else will be able to do it as well. And then the next person does. But you're right, because I did think when um, the king died and they were like, don't tell anyone, and they got in their room and they were hatching their plan, I was like, isn't it interesting? Like you can, I can understand my history better now when you always go, you know, the risk that was to these, you know, prince consorts or young children that were born and, you know, kind of raised for 10 years in the court, you know, and manipulated waiting till they came of age and could rule or something like the risk of someone when they're the next in line and how everyone around them, they must've just been assuming was plotting against them. And I did have a moment where I thought with the queen dying recently, well, at least Prince Charles just from the moment she died was like, hello, I'm the king now. There was no sense of like, you know, he can wait nine months for a coronation where they're like, quick, get this Aegon guy, you know, crowned pronto because before someone changes their mind. Now, look, wouldn't it have been so exciting if King Charles had like his swordsman at the front of like his castle who's trying to defend his rightwood to the throne versus, you know, um, you know, maybe Harry's guys getting out there and, you know, a well, little bit of blood being... Wouldn't that have been thrilling? Like, you're not the would rightful have been king, yeah. Look to I found out something you should know. Have you never imagined?
imagined yourself on the Iron Throne. We've got to quickly talk about the dragon scene, don't we? Flying through the thunderstorm. <laughs> Look, I was thoroughly excited by this. As I said, like some of the special effects in the show, I feel were a little bit sort of shaky. But this final sequence with the dragons, like they really went all out. I was watching this uh, on a smaller screen than I would have liked, but I was just deeply enthralled. I was shouting out, "Look, I was watching it on the bus." Okay, everyone, <laughs> I was watching the show on the bus. <laughs> Was anyone well, else watching it on the bus with you? Could you see anyone else on the bus? Because I was literally watching it a few hours after it had dropped. So I thought there might have been one or two people on the bus watching it. But uh, I was, you know, too wrapped up in my own screen to start looking at other people's screens. But I'm pretty certain I wasn't alone on that bus and watching Game of Thrones. Well, I can tell you that last week in the build-up to this, the audience for this was bigger than it had been over nine weeks on binge. So there was a lot of activity. We had it on at lunchtime in the office because it came through at lunchtime in Sydney time and everyone was sitting around my big screen watching it. And, and I was like, stop. I was in a meeting. I was like, stop it. I need to watch it in five. You know, I was like 10 minutes behind everyone. Yeah, this scene on the dragon. And I, you could set, you could sense what was going to happen. Luke here, Luce Riz, I think his proper name is, but Luke promises his mother that he is going to be a messenger only. You know, there's no internet back then. So the fastest way to get a message is a raven or a, or a dragon. So he flies the message. There's no sending a cheeky DM. No, yes, sliding into dance. So, but of course, scary one-eyed Eamon is there and there's always been beef between these two. And he does the right thing by his mother. He leaves, you know, he's not going to get into a fight. He's the adult or the grown-up, even though he's the younger. And Eamon's got the biggest dragon. Didn't he steal that dragon? He technically didn't steal it. He waited until the woman had died and then just sort of took claim of it without really consulting any of his cousins. Yes, because the first one to claim after someone dies kind of gets the dragon. But anyway, he ends up with the biggest, and that's ironic as well, because that dragon's the biggest. He boasts in episode eight or nine that he's got the biggest dragon in the world. Yeah, but all teenage boys sort of talk like that. (laughs) It's going to come into play that that big dragon. And how about how he just ate the other little dragon? That made me sad. I didn't know how that scene was going to play out because I knew that one of those two boys weren't making it out. And so I kind of thought that they would do a bit of a cheeky thing where suddenly Luke, who goes from innocence, um, I'm just a messenger, I'm not really here to fight, is suddenly the one that comes out victorious and then has to explain about the fact that he's gone off and killed Amon, which is quite an aggressive act of war. And so I would have thought it'd be really interesting coming from such an innocent, naive uh, character like Luke to be placed in that position. But no, they just had his uh, the giant dragon come along and chomp him in half, which was pretty bloodthirsty because Luke was a pretty likable little guy. Oh, I know, but gosh, it was sad, wasn't it? Then the message comes back by Damon that his son's dead. Season ends with this, you know, poignant scene of Queen Renee. She's now wearing a crown, um, being told about her son's death. And, you know, how is she going to respond? I think we know where it might go in season two. Like what an epic finale for the season. And I was watching this sort of final sequence where I'm watching the dragons and like getting very impressed by that. And then it ends with uh, essentially that sort of look where no, I'm going to war with all of you now. And I realized at that point, I think I'm so much more invested in this show than I ever was with the original Game of Thrones series. Like this show absolutely has me in a way, which it might be because the stakes are a little bit more specifically focused then Game of Thrones, where you really had to pick your own storyline as to which one was the one that you sort of felt most passionate about. Here, it's really just saying, look, this is the story we're telling. You follow the story specifically. But And maybe like, that's something. I'm with you, Dan. I, I think you either love it or you don't. And I think if you do, you're invested. You've watched 10 hours following this and it's 
really intense. You're really in. You understand the story between these two women and, and you, un, you, know, you get their motivations. There's a lot at stake. I love the female nuance of it's not ego first. Like you still, the, the message the queen gives her, there's still hope for a logical, peaceful way through. Um, they're not maybe responding in, 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 a, in a more warmongering kind of response, which I think brings a different perspective to it all. But, yeah, I think we've really built up 10 hours of, of, of detail with these guys and um, who knows. I remember on one of the earlier podcasts a few weeks ago, Sam had talked about one of our guests um, who's, a, who's a real fan and has read the book that in this season we've only covered four chapters of a big book um, and I think George R. Martin said that you need four seasons to tell this story. So it feels like we haven't um, yet scratched the surface and you wonder if is the whole 200-year period of the House of Dragon going to play out in this series over a number of seasons to get us up to speed of where we were when Game of Thrones started. I mean, we have jumped around probably 40 years in this season, haven't we, kind of from the time that Millie Alcock was playing the young Renee to where we find ourselves now. She's had time to have six children. When House of the Dragon first started, there was a lot of questions saying, like, what's this show really going to be? What's the appetite for people to watch more Game of Thrones? Like, what sort of stories can it tell here that doesn't feel like it's just sort of treading the same water as the previous one? But this feels so much more vital. It feels more modern in a way, which kind of really surprised me. It's got a lot of very sort of contemporary conversations it wants to mm. have about misogyny and the role of women sort of within power structures. Like, this is such a... Without shoving it down it, your vo- throat in a... Sorry, I cut you off. In a really, like, wokey way, isn't it? It's, it's very layered and well-written and how that comes across. Yeah, like there's no sequence kind of like, I'm sure everyone remembers in the end of, it was like Avengers Endgame or one of those last sort of big Avengers films where suddenly you've got these sort of four or five female heroes who suddenly beat someone down and then they all stand up for like their hero shot together, which is supposed to encourage the audience to go, yeah, women. And it felt so <laughs> on the nose and so gross. Whereas this is just a story which is telling things, uh, it's getting to the point of the structural thematic narrative without, as you said, beating you over the head with it. Like it's Mm. just getting down to business and it is so much more rewarding. Well, if I was sad, I'd be like, well, now we're going to watch next Monday, but White Lotus is back next Monday. So there's a new Monday obsession that we need to make sure everybody is on board this show, which is, I think John and I, both one of the shows that got us through 2021. But I'm also excited that this has been renewed and I know it might take a while for them to make it because, you know, I'm sure it's expensive and difficult to make, but how good that we got through 10 great episodes. Game of Thrones is back. The universe is back. We're talking about it and we've got more to look forward to, which is awesome. The Greens are coming for you, Rhaenyra, and for your children. Every man standing around the painted table urges her to plunge the realm into war. As we return to a more standard podcast next week where we review multiple shows that are happening on Binge, before we wrap up this episode, Dan, I cannot let you escape without you giving our listeners your view on a Binge Dinner Party recommendation, the kind of show if you're sitting around a table not talking about interest rates, not talking about property prices, not talking about the revolving door that is the British Prime Ministership, what TV show would you be recommending to your mates? Look, great question. Here's the thing. So there's an opportunity here where I can really do like a deep dive and find something which is something that nobody would really consider watching, but like I just sort of love deeply. 
Or I could go for something which is going to be a crowd pleaser and people listening will go like, yeah, that is a great show and just keep everyone on side. I'm going to go with the first option. I'm going to really <laughs> dive in here. With a show nobody's ever heard of before, I'm sure, there's a series called I'm Sorry. As a comedy person, I could be very immature about this. Who is insane enough to hire Gigi Hadid as their new nanny? Have we learned nothing from the sound of music? What? We are animals, by the way. I'm not. You're like a raccoon. You look super cute. But inside, you're garbage. I don't want to use the term lost cause. Then let's not say that. What? I think he does want to say lost cause, and then you told him not to, and now it's uncomfortable. Now, Ali, you are the purveyor of all things binge. Do you know, I'm sorry, do you know this is in your library? I do know it's in my library, my library. It's mine, it's all mine. No, in the binge library, because John has mentioned this show before, but we've never talked about it in any detail. And I'm ashamed to say I haven't watched it, Dan. So the floor is yours. So this is a show where if you've watched programs like maybe The League or maybe like Veep to a certain degree, so like Mm -hmm. really just acidic, nasty comedy, I think you'll probably get something out of this one. So the comedian Andrea Savage, she has uh, written a series, she created the show and she stars in it. She plays a woman named Andrea, huge stretch for her. I don't know how she does it. The character <laughs> is a LA-based TV writer. So she's trying to get like her comedy series up and oh, running. Based on a true story, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much just her telling her story. Uh, she's got a family, she's got a couple of kids. She's got a husband played by Tom Everett Scott who people mm-hmm. would know as Shades from That Thing You Do, mm-hmm. one of my favourite films. Yeah, uh, and basically, film. Yeah, it's basically like her going around, just getting involved in stories. It's very Curb Your Enthusiasm-like is probably one of the great sort of comparisons here. Because it's, it's inside about, kind of Hollywood LA stories. Like a little bit. But it's about her saying the wrong thing and just getting people upset. And you're always on her side because, you know, she's the hero in the same way everyone's always on side with Larry David, regardless of whatever horrible thing he does. And she does some truly reprehensible things in this show, but you're always on her side every time through because that's the point of view of the series. But it's just laugh out loud funny consistently episode after episode with inappropriate things you never think you'd ever hear on television, but people say it out loud and my God, my sides every time. <laughs> There's like a, a slew of great people that sort of appear in here and guests like guest roles as well as some recurring roles. So as I mentioned, you've got Tamer Everett Scott playing the husband, but then you've also got Jason Manzukas, who people have known from the aforementioned The League. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Steve Nissus, who, if people haven't done themselves a favor by checking out an HBO series, which is on binge called uh, Togetherness, yeah. uh, Nissus is one of the main guys on that. He's a person no one's ever really heard of before, even though he's been in stuff you've absolutely seen in the past. But that guy is just incredible. And you do see him a few times pop up through this. Uh, you've got great comedians like Martin Mull, Judy Greer, Scott Ackerman. Uh, like regular faces that you see in all sorts of great comedies. But probably my favorite thing is that as her mother, Andrea Savage's cast, Kathy Baker, who people would remember from Picket Fences back in the day yeah, as well as Picket a Fences. bunch of other shows. Like this is just a beautiful gem of a show for people that like filthy, just schoolboyish, just awful humor. But also if you love TV, there's just so many great comedic faces that you've seen on TV for the last 20, 30 what, years. What of that, Dan Barrett? This is a world where I am throwing back <laughs> ecstasy. I get home, I'm covered in like club sweat and my cleaves. And she's like, I don't even know whose don't it is. Again. <laughs> know that there's club sweat in the cleaves. And and then in the mornings, I can't function. Amelia's like, what is happening to mommy? 
is she okay? And now what do you do? Okay, you're now a drug addict and our daughter is scared of you? Yeah. I, in that situation, I would divorce you. I knew you'd be weird about it. Ali, it has been an absolute pleasure being able to talk TV with you this week. I look forward to doing it every week because I think um I think John Bomb just got dumped, Dan. I think um I think he's <laughs> I think he'll be worried when he gets back off the plane. No, there's, so many, John, <laughs> there's so many John fans out there. They, they they won't allow it. But um thank you so much for stepping in and having the big task of wrapping up what's been a huge show this year um in House of the Dragon. So. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I'm Ali Herbert Burns. I've been joined this week by Dan Barrett, who is usually the producer of Skip Intro. Sound editing is done by Chris Yates. And we'll be back next week with more great shows to watch on Binge. Binge.